0: So this next section, uh, Lance wanted me to do on, on treasuring Christ and preaching, but, but, but really he asked me to do it on like uh, Christ-centered preaching or gospel-centered preaching. And, uh, and so this isn't, this isn't going to be a sermon. I'm not going to do a sermon. It, it's more going to be kind of just thoughts, observations, kind of like um, that kind of stuff on, on preaching Christ and, 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 and making Christ and the gospel the center Of each of our sermons. And so this is going to be a discussion or or, or a time of just observations about preaching. Um, Sydney Graidanis defines preaching Christ as preaching sermons which authentically integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person and the teaching of Jesus. Tim Keller writes If we fail to relate the text we are preaching to the saving work of Christ, then we failed both hermeneutically and pastorally. Hermeneutically, we fail to truly reveal the message of the text because if every part of the Bible testifies to Christ, then until we discern how a text tells us about Jesus, we don't really know or understand what it means. Pastorally, we fail to guide the listeners into any real holiness because if they hear us in isolation simply telling us, how to raise our children, or face trials, or pray fervently, or create a healthy church, then we give them the totally false impression that we can be right with God and others through our own efforts. Basically, Keller and Gredonis are arguing that in our preaching, it is necessary to relate whatever text we may have to the saving work of Christ. We see this is what Jesus did in Luke 24, verse 27, where he says, then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again in verse 44 through 47, it says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, so theologically, I, I, my position is, that I, you know, I agree with Tim Keller and with, with these passages. I, I believe that the gospel ought to play a central role in each sermon that we preach. And, and I know there's different theological positions on that. So that's not the only theological position. There, there are others that, that, that see things differently. Um, but today what I want to talk about is beginning with that presupposition that, that we want our sermons to be gospel-centered, that every passage we preach ultimately climaxes and, 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 and speaks something about um, Christ's finished work on the cross um if that's your theological position, then today what I want to talk about is how to apply that into our preaching. Because I think it's it's one thing to say that we believe the gospel that that that, that our sermons should be gospel centered, but it's it's another thing to actually do it. And often what ends up happening is there's a gap between our theology of preaching and our practice of preaching. Um, I, I've seen this gap oftentimes in my own life as I've looked back on sermons and even um, and, and I've seen it in, in, in doing assessments or listening to sermons or uh, and, and oftentimes you'll, you'll find it in people that that write and claim to be gospel centered so you know theologically they're they're wanting to do this but practically there's just there's ways that we often fall short, and, 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 and that's what I want to talk about today. I just want to talk about what are some of the ways that we fail to put into practice Christ-centered preaching uh, in our actual preaching. Um, these will mostly just be observations um, from my own failures and from uh, just sermons that, that I've heard or, or, uh, or read. The first way that oftentimes I think we fail to be Christ-centered or gospel-centered in our preaching is through sermons that I sometimes call Big God Sermons. So a Big God Sermon is a sermon that expounds the glory and the majesty of God, either in creation or in a redemptive act in the Old Testament, or possibly like a theological truth. So it might be a sermon on God's sovereignty or on providence, and the sermon often does a great job of describing an attribute of God. But often it ends up never getting to the cross or to Jesus. And so the sermon ends with this glorious depiction of an attribute of God. And when people hear sermons like these, they often go away feeling encouraged. And, 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 and sermons like these are so common that rarely will anyone who hears a sermon like this even notice that anything's missing, which is why it's so tempting. Oftentimes we'll preach sermons like this without noticing that anything's missing. What could be wrong about preaching a sermon that just declared the beauty of God's sovereignty and, and without you know, specifically talking about Jesus and the cross? Um, people go away with a better understanding of some truth about God in their minds, and they feel like, This is what is supposed to happen in a sermon. And so they feel fed and they they go away feeling encouraged. But The problem with big God sermons is that the way people respond to big God sermons fails to accurately resemble the way people in the Bible responded when they actually encountered this big God. You see, in the Bible, when people encountered God They never went away impressed with a new understanding of one of his attributes. Now, in the Bible, when people encounter the real God, they fall on their faces in fear as even the best of them realize the depth of their sin and the massive gap that exists between a holy God and themselves. What I'm saying is if our Big God sermons leave people impressed with some attribute of God. It is likely only because they have not encountered the real God. And if our sermons do succeed in bringing our people to encounter the real God, well, then you'd expect them to respond like Isaiah did, right? By being overwhelmed with the depths of their sin. But if that happened, if our big God sermons actually brought people into encountering the real God. Then, how could we leave them without reminding them of the gospel? Right? What does God say almost all the time? What does God do when, when people encounter the big God? What, what, what are the first words out of His mouth? Fear not. Right? Over and over, fear not. And guess what? There's only one reason sinners shouldn't be afraid of a very big God, and that one reason is the gospel. A big God sermon without the gospel would be like Isaiah beholding God without the angel coming with the coal. It would be like Joshua beholding God in Zechariah three and just being left there with his filthy garments on. That's what a big God sermon without the gospel is like even in the book of john when when john in the book of revelation when john encounters a big jesus who some people might even think would be nicer than a big god right like like he encounters the big jesus the same jesus he walked with for three years the one that he asked if he could sit next to in heaven like He fell on his face as though dead when he encountered him. And the big Jesus had to put his hand on his shoulders, say, fear not. And then what did he have to do to the guy that wrote one of the Gospels and spent decades preaching the Gospel? He had to remind him of the Gospel when he said, I am the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death in Hades. Encountering a big God requires that we are reminded of the the gospel. Ultimately, you know, without the gospel, our big God sermons fail to distinguish themselves from, from something you might hear in a mosque or that you might hear in a synagogue. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If our sermons are meant to bring people into the presence of God, we can only do it through jesus now here's the thing we all know this we believe this we know this we believe this none of us would would argue that there's a way to god except through jesus um most of us believe that a big god is scary without the gospel and yet so often we can come up with an amazing big god sermon that that doesn't climax in the cross or, and, and, and the reason for, for most of us is because we assume the gospel, right? I mean, it, it's not because we don't believe any of the things that I'm telling us. It's because we think our people are so familiar with the gospel, they already know the gospel. So I'm going to spend all my time articulating this beautiful attribute of God that my people are less familiar with, and they will fill the gospel into all the little, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll then read it, in the context of the gospel. They'll hear my sermon. My people wear gospel glasses and they hear my sermons in the context of the gospel. Guys, if our people seriously wore gospel glasses and went through life hearing everything in the context of the gospel, we wouldn't even have. To, I mean, like, I mean, like, that would be nice, right? I mean, like, so, like, would that be the greatest thing ever? So, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's not what's happening because I'm pretty sure that most of us know what Lance was talking about when he got up here and said, "I've been a pastor for years, and I wasn't looking through preaching through the lens of the gospel." But how many times have I gotten down and the first thing I wanted to ask my wife is, "It was that terrible or can I sing the next song? Like, like, that's what I want to know. Just, just, please tell me it was just, like, okay, so that I could, like, sing, right? Like, I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm not looking at preaching the gospel through a gospel lens. So we are insane to assume that our people assume, I mean, just assuming the gospel is just a bad idea. Like, that's all I'm trying to say. Like, this is just a, a way of saying is it. like, The gospel is the most counterintuitive, crazy, glorious insane, blasphemous if God didn't say it, right? Could you imagine coming up with the gospel if God didn't say it? I mean, it's just craziness. In all of our lives, nobody loves us like God. Nobody loves us like God. And we're always projecting the way that we're treated by others onto God. Luther says, The love of man comes into being through attraction to what pleases it. That's why we're always trying to perform, right? But the love of God does not first discover, but it creates what is pleasing to it. God's love is just unique, and it's different. And our people have to be reminded of it every single week. That's why after three years of following Jesus around and preaching the gospel, Jesus went around for three years, right? It says he, like, preached the gospel in all the cities and the towns. And then when he actually went to the cross, all the people that heard him preach it for, like, six or seven days a week. I think he even preached it seven days a week, probably, right? I mean, like, uh, so, like, like uh, I mean, like, all those people were still really confused when it happened. <laughs> they, like, heard it preached seven days a week for three years, and then they're like, oh, wow, that, it happened. And they were, like, not, they didn't even have gospel lenses. They couldn't even see they couldn't even see the cross through a gospel lens when it happened. It's just not natural. It's not normal. We have to remind people every single week. They have to. Okay, so that's big God sermons without the gospel that done, that where we assume the gospel and we assume that our people assume the gospel. That's one way that we often fall short of it. It's... it's uh, Another way, second way, that we often fall short of the gospel centrality that, that is necessary and that we ought to have is when we give conviction without comfort. Most of preachers are, like, pretty good at conviction. I want you to think about the many conscience oriented questions that you ask in a sermon. All right, let's just pretend you're preaching a sermon on, like, the persistent widow, right? I mean you make your point, you go hard for a little while, and then and then you say, brothers and sisters, do you pray? I mean, seriously, do you pray? I mean do you pray like this widow? Knock, knock, knock. Why? Alright, if you'll turn to the next verse, you'll find and then what we do, right? It's like it's like we end our points with conscience, like pricking questions. That, like climax is the point. You get a good, you know, couple of jabs in there, you let the silence sit. Now you move on to your next point. All right, now I got now let's now if you move on the next verse says, it's like, What is the purpose of these questions? Its purpose is to convict, right? But what are our people supposed to do when they work? <laughs> right, I mean like what happens when they actually work? Now most of the time like we probably feel like they're not working very well. That's why we don't have to comfort very much, right? But like, but what if they did work? Like imagine they worked and and what, like we've, Aroused guilt and condemnation in our people, and you can't just move on to the next point and and leave them wounded. Zach Eswine, listen to this quote. This is this crazy quote. Preachers must take care with their conscience oriented questions somewhere in the sermon, and it doesn't have to be right away, but somewhere in the sermon. I mean, so letting them sit for a little while isn't the end of the world, right? Because they don't work right away necessarily. But, uh, but somewhere in the sermon, the preacher must return to that activity of conscience with the truth and the balm that Christ offers. Then listen to this. It is sobering to realize, but when we preachers do not offer gospel direction to the wounded conscience, we imitate someone other than God with our preaching. Let that sink in. I mean, there's nothing Christian about conscience, you know, pricking questions, right? I mean, I I think there's another one that, that asks those questions. And sometimes we do his job for him from the pulpit. guys, we want to convict consciences. How many many sermons do you preach where you're not hoping that some level of conviction falls upon your people somewhere? There's almost never a sermon that we preach where our goal isn't conviction. But if you have conviction as one of your goals, then we have to bring them to the place of Finding where there's healing and forgiveness and balm for conviction. If our goal in preaching is that our people would encounter a big God and experience conviction through his spirit, we must make sure that our sermons lead people to Jesus and to the mercy and to the forgiveness that he offers for sinners. Zach Eswine writes, this is a question that he just asked, and I think it's a really good question. He asked himself and his students, He says, Am I equally intense about grace and redemption as I am about sin and its consequences? That brings us to the next point, because the, the, the next one deals with balance. So it, it's not just, you know, do we give a little bit of like gospel hope, but it's, it, it can deal even with balance. Are we equally bringing these things? Um, The third way that we often fall short of true gospel centrality in our preaching is when we offer a general gospel that doesn't come uniquely from the text, and sometimes maybe it's even tacked on to the end. One way to think about this is just do we offer the same gospel in every single sermon, that we just kind of like have a couple of paragraphs? Oftentimes, People have like a five-minute or maybe a ten-minute section in their sermon where they give the general gospel. Sometimes they even primarily aim it at non-Christians. Like, ah, if there's any non-Christians here, and then they give a general gospel. And it's usually about, you know, how we're sinners, and God sent his son Jesus to die, and we deserve that death, but then he rose again in our place. If we repent and trust in him, then we can experience forgiveness. And the reality is... Any gospel is infinitely better than no gospel. So praise God for every general gospel that we've ever given. And the general gospel is, it's beautiful and it's true. It's amazing. But if you give the same general gospel in each sermon, what you'll find is your people will begin to tune you out. And what they will start to realize is all your real hard work gets put in on the other part of the sermon, the meat of the sermon, the stuff that comes from the specific text. That's what you spent your week working on, praying, mining. You'll also fail to offer genuine comfort to your people because, notice your conscience-pricking questions Are specific and they're unique to each sermon and yet you're giving them the exact same general gospel to these unique questions and these unique conscience pricking questions and when we do this we fail to help our people hermeneutically even understand how each passage actually genuinely and uniquely and beautifully points to some aspect of the gospel that's something our people desperately need to learn. They need to know each passage of Scripture speaks and points to the gospel in, in, in special ways. They need to see how God, how the gospel offers genuine comfort for the many different ways that we sin. And, and, and so we address the reasons that we sin, and then we show how Jesus is better than those specific reasons. We we talk about the 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 how how Jesus offers forgiveness even for those specific reasons sins and so instead of tacking a general gospel onto each of our messages let's seek to be faithful to the text and and often what we'll find is this will be the hardest part of your sermon prep it's it's that's the hard part it's 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 doing the exegesis and then how does the gospel how does this how how does how would i not understand the gospel as well if this passage wasn't in the bible like I like to think of the Bible, all of the Bible is this road that leads to the gospel, right? You know what I'm saying? And it's kind of like, what would be missing? What pothole would I hit? What would be missing if I took this section out? Like, like, you know, the God, everything He puts in here is necessary. And, and it's necessary to get us smoothly to. To the culmination and to the climax in the gospel, um, so you know, and, and and this obviously like takes it 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 it, it it's it's it, I, I like to think of gospel like I like that there, there's a book on gospel fluency. I like to like go, speaking the gospel is like a language, you know, and it, it, yeah, it takes it takes tons of of. Like like work and and study and books, and just trying to understand like how do we become more fluent in 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 speaking this 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 gospel and seeing its connections in the text and and so it's something we're always like growing in, and, and none of us arrive like like you're always like like I'm always trying to figure out how do I do this better, how do I grow in this what what what's another way to learn this and and and, and it's beautiful because it keeps you just being like in awe of the gospel as you encounter it in each text um you know oftentimes just a practical this is kind of an aside i mean often like you i just like like what lance did this morning like you just sit in the text until it like until it convicts you and then you just what is the what what gospel healing do i need for this and you mind god's word for the healing that he uses in your own soul for that and then you don't use yourself as an example in every sermon necessarily, but you speak and you take people that down the road that God took you down to, to bring you the gospel healing you needed for the conviction that, that that text gave you. Oftentimes we probably fail to preach the gospel because a text has failed to truly convict us. And if it's truly f- failed to convict us, then we haven't needed the gospel. And if we haven't needed the gospel, then we're not going to proclaim the gospel with the kind of desperation and empathy and understanding that someone who needed it and found it experiences like if those poor beggars were fool when they found the tents full of food they might not have run back so fast you know what i'm saying but the fact they were hungry and they experienced it themselves they're like we, we can't it's not right we have to and so we do that you know So. I'll give you one more way just quickly that we often fail in our gospel centrality. I have like a the, a, a bunch of but I just cut a bunch out so that uh, so I could get this in the right amount of time but uh but one way we go from from law or application directly to obedience and so you go from you, you preach a law or you preach an application in the Bible and you go directly to obedience so let's say patience you're preaching a sermon on patience uh, and so you know uh what, what do we do? We, we, we say, like, uh, we define it. Then we, then we talk about why it's necessary. Then we talk about how it's beautiful. Then we give some illustrations on what it looks like. And then we give some practical ways that we can all grow in patience. Notice what we've done. We've gone from law, be patient, to obedience. This is what patience looks like. And we've tried to help people see how to get there. Uh, it's, the, it's the most natural way to, to do it. Um, and that's why it's so easy to do. And and we do this in our counseling. We do this in our preaching. Or, so it's just so easy to fall into. But, but the thing is, if you think about it, most of our failure at being patient isn't because we forgot it was a virtue. Right? It's not like all of a sudden it's like, shoot, for a few minutes there, I actually thought, like, patience was a bad thing. And then that's why I like discounted it. And like that preacher that just reminded me what it's defined as, and then what it looks like, man, if I would have just remembered that, then I would have done it. No, I mean, there's there's a reason we get impatient, right? It, it's because, you know, we've, we've made some agenda other than love the agenda, right? I mean, like there's there's reasons. It's not because we didn't know the law. In fact, what we find is that the Bible says that love is the, the summary of the whole law, right? And so, like, ultimately, any failure to obey the law is a failure to love, right? And, and, and so the question really becomes, where does love come from? And 1 John four nineteen tells us where love comes from, right? We love, why? Because he first loved us. So just like the moon can't well up light from within itself, so you and I do not have the ability to well up love from within ourselves. And yet we know that the moon can shine, and it can shine beautifully. Just like you and I are able to love and to love beautifully, but we love the same way the moon shines. We love by reflection. Which means the only way you and I will ever be able to love is by first receiving love of our God. We love the way that we have been loved. And so ultimately all of our people's failures to obey is a failure to love. And so what do they need to be reminded of? They need to be reminded of the beauty and the steadfast love of their God for them. So think about it this way. Failure to obey is ultimately a failure to love. Failure to love is a a failure to receive and reflect the way God has loved us. That's why the law can't take you to obedience. Now, the law can be helpful because it can take us to our failure to obey. And, and so the, and, and the way that I like to think about it is the law, as it looks in the past, takes us to our failure to obey, which, which requires the gospel, right? And, and the gospel comes and forgives us for that. And what does the Bible say about forgiveness? Those who are forgiven much love much and so we feed love for past sins with the gospel of forgiveness and we we feed future like obedience to the reality that this jesus is better Whatever it is that's enticing you to this sin, like, like Lance is trying to say, right? He's more satisfying. Whatever you think satisfies you than you sin to get, it doesn't work, but Jesus does satisfy you. And so so the gospel comes and it, it fights our future sins with the satisfaction and the betterness and the enoughness of Jesus and our past sins with the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, all of which, are meant to well up love. They're all of which ways that we receive God's love and then well it up so that then we can love others. All right. Uh, I'm just going to end with an illustration, kind of a sad illustration, and then a hopeful reality. So we're, we're almost finished. First, the illustration. When I was in seminary, this was a while ago, but, uh, but I talked to some other uh, waiters uh, in, in our church that made sure uh, that it's actually still the same today and that they actually had experienced the same kind of thing. So, of course, uh, it's not true everywhere always necessarily, but this is this is what they said they had experienced uh, as well. So, as a waiter, uh, there was sometimes where I would work the Sunday afternoon shift, and I remember as a waiter, our boss, the manager, would actually gather all the servers on the Sunday afternoon shift, and he gathers together and be like, guys, this is the toughest shift of the entire week. All the Christians are going to be coming here right after church, and we all know what they're like. We know that they demand a lot, and they tip a little. But we got to do our best. you got to push through, and we're going to get this. And then we'd have like a pep talk, and then we'd be like, and then we'd do our little thing, and then we'd go off to, to do our waiting tables. And here's the crazy thing is, The Bible teaches us we become like what we worship. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us we become like what we behold. That means this. On Sunday afternoons when Christians leave church and go straight to restaurants, the reason they are notorious for demanding a lot and tipping a little is because that is what they believe about the God that they've just spent the last two hours worshiping. They have had their consciences pricked without being comforted. And in the midst of, the, in their minds, God is frustrated with them. Which is why they find themselves so easily frustrated with their servers shamed people shame judged people judge people who feel the heavy weight of their own guilt are always looking for someone to pass it on to and their servers just happen to be the first person they run into after leaving church sunday afternoon shifts ought to be the ones that all the world wants to work because Christians ought to spend the two hours before that worshiping a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness who loves them, who gives them more than they deserve. They ought to leave satisfied. But if they left satisfied, they wouldn't be notorious for demanding a lot and tipping a little. So as pastors, we must make sure that our people leave each week having encountered the true God, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We have to make sure that each week we lift up Jesus, knowing that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Each week we proclaim Jesus because we know transformation takes place as our eyes behold him. And from one degree to another, we are transformed more and more into his glorious image. And so let's be a people who proclaim the beauty, the worth, the majesty of Jesus. The only way you and I will ever be that sort of people is if we've experienced that sort of love ourselves. You see, the reality is all of us have failed to proclaim Jesus in our sermons the way that we ought to from time to time. All of us have had times where we've brought conviction without comfort, times when we've spoken of a big God without bringing people into his presence through his only Son, times where we've tacked the gospel onto the end and thus muffled the unique and glorious way it applied to that passage we were preaching. And you know what's so crazy? I think it's crazy, is that despite all the times that we have failed to accurately and eloquently and beautifully and passionately proclaim and rightly proclaim the gospel, our God has chosen to continue to use us to be the ones who proclaim it week in and week out. I often think, like, why why wouldn't he have angels proclaim the gospel, right? They would make far less mistakes than us, far less misinterpretations of Scripture than us, and they'd do it with far more eloquence than we could. But our God has chosen to use sinners like you and I to proclaim the gospel because here's what he wanted. He has decided that he wants his message of grace to be proclaimed by those who have experienced it firsthand. That means the best way to grow in our proclamation of God's grace is to humbly receive it for all the times we've fallen short. It's not to sit there and think about how you're going to do better or how you can can grow in this or what book you're going to go read. It's to sit there right now, and if you're thinking about a sermon that you regret, just receive grace. Receive His love. Receive his forgiveness. I started asking people when I meet with them, just like, when when's the last time that you did something that you couldn't make up for and you couldn't fix and you just sat there and you just had to receive grace? And you'd be surprised how many people tell me that they, they can't think of hardly anything, maybe one or two times now. This message isn't to help you go out and fix it. This message is, first and foremost, to just sit here. Before you read that book, whatever the Preaching Christ book, before you, before, you do, before, you, like, before you apply this, you receive Christ. You see, the reality is there's only one preacher who's ever gotten it right every time. In fact, this one preacher got it so right. You know what his name was? His name was actually the Word, right? Because like his life and his words so perfectly proclaimed the grace and truth of God, that to be in his presence and to hear him speak was to actually encounter. And he could say if you've seen me, you've seen the there's only one like that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, perfectly balancing grace and truth. And yet, he goes to the place you sometimes think you should be when you finish a sermon you really hate. It. Right, when you just sit down and you just feel sick and you wish you could do it again. Yeah, he went to that place and he bore the punishment that you think you deserve when that happens. Naked, ashamed, mocked, laughed at. Crying out to God and only Darkness. He does it so that even after your worst sermon you could hear your father say this is my beloved son my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know what Jesus said? Do you know the first message he gave to his disciples after he rose again from the dead? The disciples that screwed up pretty bad when he needed them the most, right? The the disciples that that failed to represent him well uh, when he was, was being taken away. They abandoned him. They denied him. Do you know what he said to Mary Magdalene in John 20? You go tell my brothers that I am going to my God and their God, my Father, their father. When Peter was too ashamed to tell a little girl that he knew who Jesus was, the next message Jesus has for him is that I am not ashamed to call you my brother. And I gave my life on the cross so that when I went back home, it wasn't just my father anymore. But he'd be your father. And it's, just, it's not just me that he says, my beloved son, but that I could invite you into that commendation. Receive that love. Receive that grace. Receive that security. And as you receive it, you will find that you you can't imagine getting to the end of a sermon without speaking that to others. The more desperate you and I are for the gospel during the week, the more we can't make it through our sermon prep without the balm of the gospel the more we won't make it through a sermon delivery without delivering it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for loving us and for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us a gospel that were we to live forever, we could never come up with something so beautiful and glorious and amazing on our own. It exceeds anything that our imaginations can even grasp. And yet you offer it to us. God. would you satisfy us today with your steadfast and unfailing love? Would you forgive us For all the times we've pointed people other places, to ourselves, to our ideas, to some other means of help, we're sorry for every careless word, for every sermon with more conviction and hope. Thank you that you forgive us. And so we receive your forgiveness this morning. We receive your love this morning. And we're reminded once again that this message of the gospel really is the most beautiful, glorious, amazing news in all the universe. And that it is one that we can spend the rest of our life getting up each week and making more clear and proclaiming and heralding and showing the many facets, the many beauties. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name.